This is case 41 from the Mumon Khan. What did Adama's peace of mind? The main case. What did Adama said facing the wall? The second patriarch standing in the snow cut off his arm and said, your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg you, master, give it rest. Bodhidharma said, bring your mind to me and I will put it to rest for you. The patriarch said, I have searched for the mind, but have never been able to find it. Bodhidharma said, I have finished putting it to rest for you. Muman's commentary. The broken tooth old barbarian came thousands of miles across the sea with an active spirit. It can rightly be said that he raised waves where there's no wind. In later life, he obtained one disciple, but even he was crippled in his six senses. Ha! The fools do not even know four characters. The verse. Coming from the West and pointing directly to it, all the troubles come from their transmission. The one who disturbs the monasteries is originally you. So the last couple of teishos, as you may recall, were devoted to Bodhidharma beginning with the time he met his teacher, Prajnatara, and following his journey from India to China, where he met with Emperor Wu, and then ending with his settling at the Shaolin Monastery, where he entered the cave and sat gazing the wall for nine years. So to continue in this vein, I thought it would be good today to bring up this koan, the koan that deals with Bodhidharma's first encounter with Huike, who later on became his main successor and the one who who's passed on the transmission to the third patriarch of Zen, Seng Tsang. And uh, as with all of those stories, the fact that most of the details can neither be proven nor refuted is not so important for us as practitioners. And so we should not get caught up by different scholarly interpretations of them. What matters, what really matters most, is that we examine the points these stories raise and recognize their relevance to our own lives today. When we look past the mind's interpretations, we can relate to an ancient story in a much more intimate way and turn toward that which is inherent and is timeless. So a bit of background on Huike. Huike's birth name was Sheng Wang. And it is said that as a young man, he showed uncommon conviction. He was very skilled at poetry, but was uninterested in household affairs, preferring to roam among mountains and rivers. He devoted a considerable amount of time to studying Confucianism and Taoism, and then thought to himself, the teachings of Confucius and Lao Tzu 
uh, rules for manners and oaths. The book of Zhuangzi and I Ching still do not exhaust the subtle truth. He later joined Dragon Gate Monastery and studied under a teacher by the name Bao Jing, who gave him ordination. One day while sitting, being immersed in deep meditation, Sheng Guang sensed a guiding voice that said, if you want to break through your delusions, you should go south. He then related this story, this uh, voice that he heard to his teacher, Bao Jing, who advised him to go study with Bodhidharma. He then left the monastery to go look for Bodhidharma. And the first encounter between them is the story brought up in this koan. So when Sheng Guang arrived at the cave where Bodhidharma was sitting, he stood outside and asked for permission to enter and receive the teachings. But Bodhidharma didn't pay any attention to his presence or his request and just kept sitting silently. Now this went on for a few days, but Sheng Guang's resolve did not weaken and he remained standing outside the cold weather. On the evening of December 9th, there was heavy snow that reached above his knees. That morning, Bodhidharma recognized his determination and said, you have been standing here for a long time. What are you seeking? Sheng Wang said, Master, I implore you, please open up the Dharma gate and save all of us, all beings. Bodhidharma replied, the incomparable truth of the Buddha can only be attained by eternally striving practicing that which cannot be practiced and bearing the unbearable. How can you, with your little virtue, little wisdom, and with your easy and self-conceited mind, or to, to aspire to attain the true teaching? When Sheng Guang heard this, he took out a sharp knife and cut off his left arm as a way of expressing his resolve. How do we understand this? How do we hear this story? So if we pause for a second and ask ourselves, if we were in Sheng Guan's place, at which point of this story do you think to yourself, the hell with that, I'm going somewhere else. Will it be on the way as the weather gets more challenging? Will it happen when you are ignored by a person from which we, you seek guidance? Will the breaking point be waiting outside the snow without any guarantee of entry? Or maybe we will walk away after being rebuked or feeling rebuked. But looking beyond emotional or intellectual interpretations, if we look beyond, we can easily see that the story of Sheng Guang is asking us to examine the level of our own resolve and our willingness to be honest about how determined we are about the practice. Of course, we want to break through. We want to find freedom from the grip of our habitual consciousness. 
And we want to find, arrive at some measure of peace within this impermanent existence and the many challenges that come with it, that come with occupying this body. But what is the degree of our resolve? How consistent or intermittent is it? Now think about drilling a hole through a rock or a thick piece of metal. If you want to drill a hole, you got to be steady, consistent, patient, determined. If you speed it up, you will burn the tip of the drill. It won't work. If you keep stopping to check the hole or take frequent breaks, you will get discouraged and give up. What is determination? How does that show up in our lives? Where are we applying? Or what are the parameters that we use to know when we need to be determined and then when we rather not? Or when we take a break from that? And we often say that Zen training comes down to moment by moment, constant and seamless practice. Yet our tendency is to compartmentalize it to specific times or activities. And of course apply rules to different times that we are or we are not. And then the rest of the time our attention drifts away by the winds of habit and circumstances. And the resolve is eroded. As you've heard many times, this is not a part-time hobby to be picked up on a weekend and put aside based on what's convenient, based on feelings, thoughts. Why is it so important to maintain strong and consistent resolve? Because we are all interconnected whether we agree with it or not. We're all liable for each other, whether we believe it or not. And so your state of being will inevitably ripple through everyone. We can spread discontent, anxieties, and restlessness, or we can spread a sense of ease, contentment, acceptance, peace, loving kindness, it's not a thought, it's an energy. Some may feel that the practice is very demanding and it's just, there's not, just not enough time in my life for that. But it's like everything else we engage in. It has more to do with prioritizing what we find to be important miraculous that we do find time for other things. We do devote ourselves to something, often without even knowing that we are devoting ourselves to just going around in circles and then being surprised that we cannot bore a hole through the rock. Nothing works. 
how determined are we is the question. Maybe, maybe what will help us is the, the recognition that the, this practice is dealing with a matter of life and death in the most direct way. Can anyone put aside, truly put aside the matter of life and death? Can we? Does that matter have to do with a particular practice that we either pick up or put aside? Does that matter have to do with belief? Whether we buy it or not? Of course, escape is not an option. So all we are left with is either to face it directly or bury the head in the sand. Those are the options for everyone. Which one do we choose? Bodhidharma said to Sheng Wang that it takes a great deal of determination to truly face ourselves. And then he added, how can you, with your little virtue, little wisdom, and with your easy and self-conceited mind, are to inspire to attain the true teaching? Is he being derogatory or insulting? He's simply saying that we try to gain entry into the path while being in the grip of our petty and self-concerned mind. Is that an insult? It may feel like that. How can you say that to me? So we can stop there and walk away or actually listen to what the words are really saying and look, and look. at how we practice or how we live our lives. And here again, we need to go beyond emotional intellectual interpretation so we can see that Bodhidharma is showing us who we really are by pointing to the ways we cover it up. By pointing to what we are grasping. By pointing to the way we live. And so to gain entry, we must let go of our self-conceited mind and everything that comprises the great story of me. Relinquish, release. And since we have become so attached to the details of this story, letting any of it go feels like cutting off a limb. Because I'm letting, essentially, I'm letting go of me. Me as who I think I am. And, but because this attachment is so persistent, we have to cultivate the willingness and resolve to do it again and again and again and again. There are days we feel some amount, some level of freedom from ourselves. We do. Many do. Only to discover the next day that 
what was released yesterday has tightened up its grip today. How is that possible? I thought I let it go yesterday. I thought I cut it off yesterday. It is very persistent. We are very persistent. We are. By grasping. We need to change that ability to be persistent and divert it in a different direction. Use it. Use our stubbornness to the benefit of all. We have it. The ability, that is. And that takes a great deal of courage and trust, which is what Sheng Guang is expressing. And it is what we are encouraged to find in ourselves by entering his state of being. He is willing to let go and allow his body to drop away so he can gain entry. He was standing on the threshold between his conjured up self and his intrinsic self. Willing to drop away. Willing to put aside the conjured up me. Now you may think it's not conjured, it's really me. Of course we think that. And that's okay, because this is what we have to go and examine. That's the assumption, isn't it? I know. Okay. Go look. Go look for what you think you know. See how substantiated is it. And the truth is, passing through this threshold is available to everyone. But it can seem completely impossible or as simple as walking from here to the window to open it. Both are true. As Nagarjuna, as the famous words of Nagarjuna, he said, wisdom is like a mass of fire. It can't be entered from any side. Right after that, he said, wisdom is like a clear pool of water. You can enter from any direction. This gateless gate, as this collection of coins is called, is wide open. It's wide open. But there's only one caveat. The price of admission is you. You, if you are willing to pay with yourself, it's wide open. Enter freely. If you're not, it's like a mass of fire. You cannot enter from any direction. You can't enter while taking yourself with you. That's not going to work. You are the one that makes it gated. So what do we do? What do we do?
To enter Sheng Wang's journey, we don't need to leave our family or travel to China or anywhere. What we need to do today is to face ourselves wholeheartedly, experience the entire gamut of thoughts and emotions that seem to never stop and ask, what is this? Ask, not take for granted. Ask, what is that? Instead of going along with the assumptions or the assumption that we know who we are, we need to observe our fearful and grasping mind, acknowledge the ideas and opinions we have become attached to, and gently yet continuously release our tight grip. Gently and continuously. Too gentle won't work. Too determined may not work either. One may be, may be exhausting or too exhaustive to a point of not being able to move on. The other one will not generate any power. Wholehearted, lighthearted at the same time. In the commentary, Shibayama says, the above account is not in accordance with historically traceable facts, and it may be a mythological description by the author. But the painful and desperate struggle in seeking after the truth, even at the risk of one's own life, is not a mythological fabrication by an old Zen master. He who has experienced the same pain and hardship in seeking the truth cannot read this just lightly as an old story. It's like every koan. We have to enter it in order to really understand what's going on. Or in order to truly embody the teachings it is offering us. If we get caught up in the story, we get caught up. That's as far as we're going to go. We hear it. We think about it. We may have emotions around it. We, we pass some kind of judgment. Define it. File it away. Then it's no longer working. Or we may think this is not working. It's supposed to do this for me. I don't want to change. I want it to do it to me. I'm here. That's it. Now the rest should happen to me. But if I'm really here to practice, I'm here to muster up the courage to go beyond what I think. To go beyond what I feel. To go beyond. Determination is key. Now the tenth precept, the tenth, the grave precept, is I vow devotion to the practice. Now the precepts are not, as you've heard many times, not only to those or for those who have taken Jukai, studied Jukai, have taken ceremony, received the precepts, and now they stop practicing. No. 
This is to all of us. I vow devotion to the first day we show up. We have to ask, what does that mean? I vow devotion to the practice. What is the practice? I vow devotion to acting a certain way, looking a certain way, believing some set of rules or standards, following along, drinking, in, sitting, getting up, bowing. Or does it mean I vow devotion to raise the question, to always, constantly raise the question rather than walk around with the answer in my backpack. So to raise the question, we first have to put down the answer. We have to put down, I know. Then we can explore. So I vow devotion to keep the great doubt alive. I vow devotion to not know. I vow devotion to trust while I don't know. And we may say, I want to experience peace of mind. But our actions may not be quite in alignment with that statement. And while we look for peace, we get entangled again and again in inner conflicts that manifest inwardly and outwardly in the way we interact with the world. But as Thich Nhat Hanh said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Peace is the way. How do I know I am not at peace? How do I know? I go to the story and the story is telling me I'm not at peace. I go to the thoughts. I go to the emotions and allow those to tell me where I'm at. Is it so firm, so fixed, so substantiate that we are going to allow that to dictate how we are, who we are? Sheng Wang arrived at that understanding or the conclusion that this does not work. So he was willing to put it all on the line, all of it on the line, completely empty out, standing outside the cave with the pain, in the snow, in the cold. An, old, an ancient Zen master wrote a poem about this image of Shen Guang standing outside the snow and says, the snow of Shorin, that's the temple, is stained crimson. Let us all dye our hearts with it, humble though it may be. Breathe it in. Relate. Relate fully then it's not looking at an old story anymore. It is turning to our own pain, our own suffering, 
our own fears and asking the question about that not about the story whether or not it happened and it is said that Bodhidharma recognized Cheng Wang's sincere commitment and allowed him to enter the cave and then he gave him the Dharma name Huike Huike then asked is it possible to listen to the Buddha Dharma Bodhidharma replied, the Buddha Dharma cannot be attained by following others. Not what we want to hear. One has to see directly into his own nature. Then Sheng Wang asked the question brought up in this koan. Your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg you, Master, can you please put it to rest for me? Give it rest. Give me peace of mind, if you can. What is the Buddha Dharma? How can one listen to it? Where is it? We just chanted, right, opening this Dharma. This Dharma is incomparably profound and minutely subtle. Rarely met with, rarely even in millions of eons. Yet, yet the last line says, now we see it, now we hear it, now we receive, and now we maintain. It's like a mass of fire, yet clear pool of water. You enter from any direction, Rarely met with, now we see it, now we hear it. When we seek for it outwardly, it is, or in others, it is elusive and out of reach. But when we turn inwardly, it is naturally, naturally verified. And so hearing and seeing the Buddha Dharma becomes of course, available. And this is what Bodhidharma is saying. But it is not what Huike is experiencing. He says, my mind is in turmoil. And all I see, all I feel is restlessness, discontent, unease. And he's asking, can you please put it all to rest for me? Well, we can relate to that not that difficult to enter this state of being. There is a sense of restlessness and unease. Of course, there is. But what is it that is restless and, and not at peace? What is it? Where is it? If I just utter the statement, I am not at ease, I am not at peace, I take the I for granted, and therefore the unease is firm and fixed. I verify, or my words verify me, uh, so I think. Well, where do I go from there? That's being stuck. And that's verifying the stuckness to myself. Where is it? Can you put your finger on that? Can it be located? Is it that 
firm as it seems, as it appears. And when we get triggered, feel criticized, maybe even lash out in defensive ways, do we even know what it is that we are defending? Do we know who we are defending? What are we serving? Who are we serving so fiercely that we are willing to defend it with all this anger, with all this wasted energy? Why? For what? You know, such reactivities often operate on an automatic mode. And we may find ourselves swept away with thoughts or emotions. And so the practice is encouraging us to observe the automatic process or processes and ask, what is it that has so much power over me? What and where is it? And this is what Bodhidharma is asking Kweke to do, to look. He says, of course, sure, I can put it to rest for you. But there's just one thing you're going to have to do. You bring it here. Show me. Bring it. And I will take care of it. And Rika did that. He did look. He took the time to diligently search for that which is tormenting him and holding him back. And he came back empty-handed because he couldn't find anything. But never mind Huike. Can you find something there? When you look. So when he came back empty-handed, Bodhidharma said, there, I put your mind to rest. What did Bodhidharma do? What is our expectation from a teacher or from the teachings? What is our expect expectation? What do we want? And what are we willing to do for that? When the Buddha was about to die, Shakyamuni Buddha was about to die, his disciples were weeping around him, crying, not knowing what they will do. And he looked at them and said, what's going on with you? What's wrong with you guys? It's never been about me. The Dharma is your guide, is your light. The Dharma is your guide. Are you allowing the Dharma to guide you? And what is the Dharma teaching? It's not that complicated. Interdependent origination. Everything is everything. Nothing exists unto itself. You know, often Dharma teachers feel like they are parrots saying the same thing again and again and again and again in many ways. Because that's what it's teaching. And it's not saying buy it because it's good. It's not saying that. Nobody's saying that. It is asking us to go search. Go look. See if it's otherwise. See for yourself. Can we see anything? Dharma teaches, not just, of course, sutras and books and teshos. Just look around you. Look outside. 
Do you see anything that is not dependent on anything else, on everything around it? Do you, th do you see anything that exists by itself in a vacuum? So as in the case of each koan, we need to enter this story, merge with Huike in this case, in this koan, and personally experience what he is going through. So how do you experience my mind is not at peace? What is your sense of feeling stuck, held back, restless, discontent, alienated? And in varying degrees, we all know how that feels like. And so we can all relate. We cannot deny that the feelings are tangible and real, of course. And so to go search for the mind is to look for that which is substantiating or substantiates and gives rise to the feeling of not being at peace. Don't stay with the feeling of not being at peace. Look beyond, look deeper. Don't just utter the words. Hold on to the thought. Grab a hold of the feeling. Where do they come from? Can we locate their abode or source? And this is not a psychoanalytical process. There is time and place for that, of course. That's not what this is about. It's not asking us to investigate the story. It is asking us to investigate what is the story standing on. We may very well be convinced that we are stuck because of past events or due to current circumstances. But is it possible, is it possible that the assumption that we are stuck is, is the only thing that validates the sense of being stuck? Is it possible that the feeling of being held back is by itself creating the one who is held back or not at peace? And if we are open to this possibility, then we can put all our assumptions to the test and then go search for that mind that holds all of it. And the only way to know if there is something there, something solid there, is to look. Which is a personal and intimate exploration that cannot be done by anyone but you. And then what happens when we go search and come back empty-handed? Then what? If we truly search and we truly arrive at that conclusion that there is nothing there, then what happens? There's an old Zen master equated searching for the mind to searching for another person on an uninhabited island. This is based on an old international law. If you discover an island and after exhaustive search conclude that there's no one there, the island comes under your possession. Same principle applies to searching for the mind. If you exhaust the search for your mind and arrive at the conclusion that there is nothing substantiate there, then the thoughts, memories, and emotions lack solidity, the solidity we assign to them, and therefore cannot hold you back, 
then you can experience the freedom of having the entire universe at your possession. And that, all that saying is that if you search for yourself diligently and arrive at the conclusion that you are nowhere to be found, then you realize that you are everywhere to be found. You are everywhere to be found. That's the right way to understand emptiness. If you look deeply and recognize that you are nobody, then you realize that you are everybody. That's the source of compassion. Other than that, there is no true compassion. I can be compassionate while holding on to separate sense of existence. It will be intermittent. It will be based on some parameters. It will be conditional. Only by seeing or understanding interdependent origination that I am not what I think I am, I realize that I am you. And I am everyone. So after Huika was allowed entry, he stayed by the side of Bodhidharma and studied with him. It is said that Huika was always take, talking about mind and nature, but did not realize the essence of the truth. Bodhidharma just refuted his errors, but did not explain the essence of mind that is free from thought. One day, they both went to climb a sacred mountain, and Bodhidharma asked, Where are we going? Huika said, Please go straight ahead. Just that. Bodhidharma said, If you go straight ahead, you cannot move a step. Upon hearing this, Huika experienced great enlightenment. After Bodhidharma's, Bodhidharma's passing, when Huike became a successor, he went to one of the local towns and taught when the occasion arose. And he said that he had many followers, but he spent 30 years hiding his light by mixing with the crowds and changing his appearance. Sometimes he would go to the wine stalls, sometimes to the butcher stalls. Sometimes he would give talks on the street and sometimes he would work with the outhouse cleaners. Someone once asked him, you are a person of the way. Why do you act this way? Huike said, I tune my mind by myself. What business is it of yours? I practice. You practice. Never mind my practice. What about your practice? That's taking full responsibility. That's the free spirit of Zen. Free in terms of it's up to you. This is the pure land. It's up to us to make it so. And to make it so is not to create it. To make it so is actually to stop creating. To make it so is to get out of the way. 
so it is able to flow naturally. If we can play the most vital role in the development of Zen, the Zen tradition, we all owe him a great deal of gratitude, gratitude to his devotion and the sincere practice that he, he maintained after Bodhidharma died. Kazan commented on Huika's legacy and said, essentially, there are no distinctions of superiority and inferiority among the Buddhist masters and their honorable virtues. But this master, Huike, was great among the great ones. Even though Bodhidharma came from India, Zen could have not reached the present day had it not been for Huike's transmission. His trials were greater than others. His determination in seeking surpassed all. My mind is not at peace. Where is this mind? Who is not at peace? Raising waves when there is no wind. Gouging a wound in a healthy flesh. Making something out of nothing. That's what we do. That's our specialty. There is nothing there. But please don't take my word for it. Verify it. You verify it through your own sincere and diligent practice and put it all on the line. Thank you.